These last weeks we have been in the book of John. We've been talking about prayer. We specifically have been talking about the farewell discourse of Jesus where he taught in three different places about prayer. Now we come to John chapter 17. After Jesus has spoken to his disciples in that farewell address, he prays. I think he prayed for them certainly prayed for them, but I think he prayed for them in their hearing, that they heard what he prayed. And this morning, we're not going to read all of John chapter 17, but I want to read a bit of it. I want to read the part of the prayer where Jesus, in fact, prays for himself. This prayer is broken up into three different parts. First of all, he prays for himself, and then he prays for his disciples, the apostles, and then he prays for those who would come to believe as the result of the message of those disciples and apostles, which is us, if you're a believer here today. So that's the way the prayer is broken up. The next three weeks from now, we will, or three, the next following three weeks, we will talk about how he prayed for the apostles and us. But this morning, I want to focus just on what Jesus prayed for himself. So let's read it together, beginning in chapter 17 and verse 1. Just listen to this. Listen to it and picture it, if you can, in your minds as Jesus prayed. When Jesus had spoken these words, the farewell address, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, it's interesting, the posture of prayer. Sometimes we, we make light of that or we think that's just a, just a mechanical kind of thing. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. He didn't, he didn't run into prayer flippantly with his father. And he said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I want to look at just that section this morning. I want to look at what Jesus prayed for himself as we're spending this summer talking about prayer and looking at various prayers, this is a, this is a good place to end it all. This, this is a magnificent picture of the heart of God. A magnificent picture into who He is and all that He is for us. So let's just take a moment here and do that. We begins here this way. He says, Father, which, which is a more intimate declaration than even the Lord's Prayer where it says, Our Father, Father. Jesus addresses His Father. The hour has come. The hour has come. You can sense the rising climax, can't you? It's coming to climax here. In the book of John, various places, walk with me. If you have your Bibles, just quickly Look at the times that he talks about that particular subject. In chapter 2 and verse 4, it says this. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then if you go to chapter 7, 
in verse 32. It says this, excuse me, in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then if you turn over another chapter into verse 20 of chapter 8, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then if you go to chapter 12, in verse 23, it says this, things begin to change. The hour has come, Jesus says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And if you turn to 13 and verse 1, it says this, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then 13, chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And then you come to chapter 17. And again it says, Father, speaking to his Father, the hour has come. Can you, can you sense that? That is, that is what this book is about. That hour. This is one story about that hour. Really, and what happened to this Jesus in that hour? Not a literal hour, but but in what was impending now was what all of that previous to that was pointing to. This is the center. This is the pivot point. The hour has come, and so this is what Jesus now begins to pray regarding that hour. Several things I want to make note of in this text, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. The first one is this. The hour has come. The inference of that statement is that this was a set hour. This was a predetermined hour. This was something in all eternity past that was scheduled to happen, and now was the time it was going to happen. God's purposes and plans were going to be fulfilled in this hour. That's significant. That's very significant. This hour. That speaks of the sovereignty of God. That speaks of of God in all eternity past planning something to occur. Now think about that a minute. You read in other places where, where Jesus, or where the disciples are talking about the, the, the death of Jesus, and they say, what, what was, you, you think, in a sense, in the book of Acts, you did all of this. Well, this was, this was predetermined. This is what God's plan was for this to happen. This thing that was going to happen in this hour. Now, stop for a minute. Sometimes we would think, why pray? Why is Jesus praying? The hour is going to come. The hour is going to come no matter what. It's, it's determined by God. This hour is going to come. So what is the purpose of prayer? 
Why pray? And yet Jesus prays. Prayer was not about changing the events of that hour. Prayer was about being in tune with the events of that hour. The hour has come. Jesus isn't fatalistic, even though He knows it's been determined by the Father. He prays to the Father. He's in relationship with the Father. One of the things that we said as we began this series, one of the reasons that we are talking about prayer this summer is that we, I believe very fundamentally that God uses means to accomplish His purposes. In other words, He uses the means of the Gospel to save people. He uses prayer as a means to fulfill His purpose. In other words, we pray because, because God uses means of prayer to accomplish and yet God determines what's to be accomplished. So how do you do those things together? How can He use means a prayer, and yet that be predetermined at the same time, how, how does that work? I think it works in the sense of, of what I've told you and what I believe with all of my heart, that God begins to stir the hearts of His people to pray according to what He wants to accomplish. He begins to stir our hearts. And as God begins to stir your hearts to pray for something, it, could, it, it should build hope in your heart that God wants to do something. Now, do we get it always right in the way we verbalize it? We're fallible. We don't always get it correct exactly as we verbalize our prayers. But God uses means. He stirs the hearts of people. So if God begins to lay somebody on your heart to pray for, and you begin to get a growing burden to pray, pray. God uses means of prayer to accomplish things. You see that God-centered view of prayer? I think that's the view Jesus has here. He knew the Father. The hour has come, and yet He prays. He prays for what He knows is going to happen because God's purposes and plans will not be thwarted, and yet He still prays. I think we should do the same. We, we need to, to learn to pray, learn to, to, to walk with our God in that kind of relationship that he begins to lay upon us the things to pray for as the means to accomplish purposes. And I don't think those are contradictory statements. So here he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. And he goes on to say in verse 5, or excuse me, in, verse, uh, in that verse, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What do we see there? Well, I hope we remember that the Scripture says God will not share His glory with another. God will not share it. He doesn't do that. He is the one who is supremely glorious and He doesn't share that. He doesn't share it with another except another is worthy of that glory. So what do we have here? It says, Father, glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You is not not a statement of the deity of Christ, that He is God. Jesus is God. Only God will share the glory of God. God the Father and God the Son. Jesus was God. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. Don't let anybody say anything other than that. Jesus was God. That's what He prayed. That's why He prayed the way He prayed. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Now, it's certainly appropriate for me to say, Lord, help me to glorify you, but not to glorify me to glorify you. 
Only the Son could pray that. Only God could pray that. And that's amazing in itself. That God the Son prays to God the Father. If God the Son prays to God the Father, ought we to pray to God the Father? If that's the example He set, ought we not to pray? Do we, do we dare not do what Jesus felt a need to do in this sense? He goes on in that to teach us something else. It goes back to what we talked about in chapters 14, 15, and 16. That's, that's on tape. You can get that if you didn't get those messages. But one of the reasons I started there, I, I started to start in John chapter 17 and decided, no, I can't start. I need to back up to John 14, 15, and 16. Because three different times, Jesus talks about prayer. And in the last time when he talks about prayer, he says... Whatever you ask in my name, or whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And we spent two weeks talking about that, realizing that you can't understand that text in chapter 16 unless you go back to 15 and 14 and read what he says there. Because the reason that he did not qualify the condition in chapter 16, the reason he didn't give any qualification there, is because he'd already given the qualification previous to that. And the qualification was that it might glorify God. Whatever you ask in my name that will glorify God, I will give to you. That's the qualification. Now here, it's interesting, Jesus' supreme concern. His supreme concern here is what? Look at it in the text. It is that he might glorify the Father. He says down in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The purpose of the accomplishment that the Father might be glorified. Prayer is about the glory of God. The whatevers are qualified with the glory of God. We need to be in tune with the glory of God. I think that's why um, the qualification is given. If, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish. That's again taught in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. It's another conditional part of of whatever you ask. If you remain, what's the remaining about? As we talked about, the remaining about is us getting in tune with the glory of God. With us being able to see and love and appreciate the glory of God. And once we get a taste of the glory of God, we want to pray that the glory of God would continue to be expanded to others. First and foremost, prayer is about helping us. Helping us to see the glory of God accomplished in our world. I pray that we see that. That Jesus didn't say, save me from this hour. That was not his prayer. He prayed, sustain me in this hour. Sustain me that I might fulfill all that I've come to fulfill that you might be glorified. Is that our attitude? Is that our posture? Is that, is that why we pray? Is that the heart of our prayers? Sometimes it's not, is it? Sometimes it's more about us than it is His glory. But once we begin to be continually um, strengthened by the glory of God ourselves, then we begin to want to pray about the glory of God for others. So God help us in that. Jesus understood that it was about the glory of the Father, that he came to glorify God 
in what he did. Now, the, the interesting thing about that is that that prayer, that prayer that was not a prayer to remove this, but that prayer that he was praying here was a prayer that had the cross right in its sights. As he prayed that, that he might glorify the fa- be glorified himself, that the Father might be glorified, it was the cross that he was looking at. He had to go through that in order for that prayer to be fulfilled. He was looking square on at it and he knew it was coming soon. That was the spirit of his prayer. Even that, Lord, may you be glorified in this cross, in what's going to happen in the next hours. May God be glorified. And one of the things we find, and one of the things we said is the apex of God's glory. The apex of God's glory is in the cross. That's why Jesus had to go through it. That's why he had to experience it. If you want to see the glory of God in its fullest array, look at the cross and all the cross is and all that the cross accomplishes and all that it does for us. That is the apex of the glory of God being seen in the world around us. And Jesus prayed, In verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Um, he, He one day knows that he's going to go back to the glory that he had with the Father. But it was through the cross. It was through the cross. It's amazing here in this text that that Jesus' prayer is also this kind of prayer. It's a prayer that that his, the name of God would be manifest and it would not be soiled in its manifestation. Look at what he says down in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. How did he manifest that name? How did Jesus do that? Why did that name need to be manifested? Um, he did it through the cross. We talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning and I want to come back to it today again as we, as we come to this table now. You, you must see this. You must see this if this table is going to have its full significance to you. He says in that, I have manifested your name. His, his fear was in the sense that that that, that manifestation would be spoiled except for the cross. It wasn't a fear as much as he knew that if he didn't go to the cross, it would be soiled. How would it be soiled? How would the name of God be soiled if there weren't a cross? Because God had promised to save a people. This this book talks about God promising to save a people. But the problem is that people have sinned. That people have 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 sinned against him. That that people have committed cosmic treason against him. And yet he's promised he's going to save them. But to save them would soil his name. Because God is just. And he can't wink at injustice. He can't wink at sin. He can't wink at the cosmic treason. So how is that name to be manifested? How is that name to be raised up and unsoiled? 
Jesus knew it was the cross. He knew that the glory would come in the cross. That, that the, the, uh, the dilemma would be solved in the cross. Turn to Romans chapter 3 where my Sunday school class was this morning. I want, I want to read it to you as I read it to them this morning. Here's the dilemma. In other times I've talked about it being the divine dilemma. But here's the dilemma. Here it's talking about the righteousness that comes from God. Look in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. See that word manifested again? That your name might be manifested, that your righteousness might be manifested. Okay, the righteousness has been manifested, but how can it be manifested? How can it be righteousness? These people have sinned. How can God save them? The divine dilemma, which is no dilemma to God. But if you read down in this passage, you come to verse 26. It says this, beginning verse 25. Um, talks about Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over sins, former sins. Passed over former sins. In my class we talked about this morning, those former sins are what? Were all of the people who God had promised to save who had sinned before Christ. He passed over those sins. But the real issue is what He pass over them forever. Because to pass over them forever would make God unrighteous if there weren't a way to resolve the dilemma. Here we read on, it says, because this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And what that really is saying in that text is that it was the cross that brought those two things together. That God could be both just and justifier. How could He do that? How could He justify the wicked? How could He justify the ungodly? How could He justify those who had spurned His glory? How could He justify those who had committed cosmic treason? And still be just. How could he just wink at it? And the answer is he couldn't. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus knew that the remedy was the cross. What he was praying when he talked about glorify me that you might be glorified, it was that cross that he saw. And he knew that was the thing that brought it together. The cross. Christ. That he, he took the penalty. He took the punishment. He was the propitiation. He turned away what, what should have justly fallen on all who believe. So this morning, I hope as we come to this table that we realize the significance of it. What it represents to us. What, what Jesus was praying here what God has done for us in Christ. And God is supremely glorified in that event. And, and we see the glory of God most fully when you see it. If you're struggling with the glory of God, 
It may be that you're struggling at that point. It may be that you think my sin uh, was not that big a thing. It was not that big a deal. There was not all that big a dilemma. I tell you today, there was a huge dilemma. How could God be just and yet the justifier? Jesus' prayer is about that. Jesus' prayer is about that cross. And he says here, and I'm grateful that he says it, look at it in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The amazing thing about it is because Jesus did see the remedy and did desire to fulfill what was needed to be fulfilled in taking the propitiation and punishment on the cross. Because of that, he now has the authority to grant eternal life. That was given to Jesus. It is in him. It is in him that the words of eternal life reside. And so this morning, that's why our hope needs to rest there and nowhere else. We've talked often about the fact that that you can believe there are multiple roads that will get you to heaven and there are multiple gods who will take you there. You can believe that. You're free to believe that. What you're not free to do is to label that as Christianity. That is not what Jesus taught. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus was given the authority to grant eternal life. Not Jesus and twelve others. Not Jesus and one other. But Jesus, because He went to the cross. He is the one who bridged the dilemma of just and justifier. He is the one who kept God's name from being soiled by being declared that He is unrighteous in declaring the righteous or the unrighteous not guilty. You see that coming together here? And part of that's all of what Jesus is praying here. He's praying that and realizing that because he, in this sense, when he says, I've accomplished the work that you gave me, he was looking ahead. He was looking on it, knowing that work would be accomplished. And the work is that God could be both just and justifier. That his glory would shine in rising and engulfing the dilemma. So I pray this morning that as we come to this table that you rejoice in what it means to you. You rejoice that Jesus was willing to do what he did. That it becomes so precious to you and strengthening to you today. Let's pray together. Father, The psalmist prayed often like this. He prayed, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is great. You gave him understanding that there was something about your name that they could rest in. Something about the fact that whatever God promises to do, he will accomplish in his purposes was the farthest thing from their mind to imagine that 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 prayer hung on the cross. That prayer hung on what would happen hundreds of years later as Jesus went and accomplished all that he'd come to accomplish. 
that he declared from the cross that it's finished. It's finished. God's name has been made manifest. God's name remains unsullied. God's name cannot be equated with unrighteousness, even though he pardons the guilty. He pardons the unrighteous because all of the punishment for their guilt he took upon himself. Lord, help us. Help us this morning now to realize what this table represents to us. May it strengthen our souls. May it strengthen our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like those to come who are going to help us distribute the elements. Matthew is going to lead us in worship even as we receive these elements this morning. It's our custom to distribute them in the pews and ask you to hold them, contemplate all that we've talked about and all that they mean to us, and we'll receive them together.
This represents to us the body of Christ. It was broken. Broken that the name of the Father might be manifest and unsullied in acquitting the guilty. Acquitting you. Take and eat and be grateful. Blood of Christ.
echo hurts from your hands and pierced Extravagant love, oh how great the Father, I have glorified you, Father, by accomplishing the work that you sent me to do, which does make certain that you would have an unsoiled name, that your name would be manifest. It would be a name that we could call on this morning, that we could say with all confidence, for the sake of your name, Forgive my iniquity, for it is great. Take and drink and be grateful. We're going to sing. It was the custom of the early church to close by singing. And we've been singing a song as a theme really for this summer months. O great God of highest heaven. Occupy my lowly heart. Let's sing together. Stay. Oh, great God of highest heaven, occupy thy lowly heart. Hold it on and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no voice or sin remain. Had no ears to hear your voice Did not know your love within Had no taste for heaven's joy Then your spirit gave me life Opened up your word to me Through the gospel of your Son me endless hope and Oh, 